Well, we're going to continue uh, our topic of uh, missional life. What does it look like to live a life on mission? This week our theme has been justice. What does it look like to outwork God's heart for justice in the world today? Uh, and this week I uh, interviewed uh, Dr. Sean Dutoy for this morning's sermon. Uh, we had a conversation uh, exploring what does it look like to outwork that. And uh, Sean is an amazing man. He's a very smart man. He uh, used to be the theologian in residence for Tear Fund, which is uh, partly how he was expressing his heart for justice. Uh, but also he's uh, currently writing actually a commentary on 1 Peter, and uh, he's a New Testament lecturer for Alpha Crucius Bible College. And so we had a wide-ranging conversation around this whole topic of justice, looking at the biblical theme and narrowing it right down to what it looks like to really live this out practically today. So I'm sure that you'll enjoy this chat that I have with him. It's also available on all of our podcast pipes if you want to listen to it a bit later. Uh, but uh, here's my chat with Sean Dutoy. Why is uh, this whole topic uh, important for us to um, really get our heads and hearts around? Yeah, great question. Look, I, I think the whole Bible is, is about justice. And I mean, it starts in Genesis chapter 1. And some people might think that that's a strange place to start, but I think it really lays the foundation if you want to have a serious biblical and theological discussion about what justice is and why it matters. And I think in Genesis 1, we have this repetition that what God is creating is good. Mm. Now, in the ancient world, we don't have bold italics or underlines. So if you want to rip uh, you know, if you want to emphasize a theme, you repeat it several times to show it's important. And all throughout Genesis 1, God makes something very good. God makes something good, 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 good. Climaxing with this, God creates human beings, and that's very good. Uh, and then you, if you just, just don't stop reading there, but carry on reading into the next chapter, we kind of have a different angle on the same story. Um, and God's looking at what he's created. And then he says, Adam's alone, or the human being is alone, and this is not good i.e. this is not the way it's supposed to be. This, there's something lacking here. And it's mm. quite startling because chapter one, good, 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 very good. And then Genesis two, whoa, something is lacking. Something's missing. And then God creates this other person, you know, an upgraded 2.0 version, if you like, for <laughs> the ladies out there. Um, and, and, and so then he creates these human beings and he gives them this, this vocation to look after the creation and to work creation. And the words he uses there are words that are usually used in temple contexts, which indicates that this is a sacred vocation to look after what God has created. Now, that sets the stage. What God has created is good, and community is good, and we have this awesome responsibility to look after what God's given us. But this word good is a thick word. It's a rich word. It, it means that which is the way it's supposed to be, that which is aesthetically pleasing. You know, it's beautiful. It's well-designed. It's put together. It's intricate. And it has value. And all of that is what God is saying about his creation. It has value. It's important. Community is important. Relationships are important. This is a vision for how it's supposed to be. And then, obviously, if you carry on reading the story, Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, it tells the story of things spiraling out of control. This is not good, or this is not the way it's supposed to be. Mm. And that's important because it starts with this vertical element of a kind of uh, 
human beings choose to trust the voice of another. Human beings choose to go against the will of the creator. Uh, and that vertical uh, relationship is ruptured between human beings and God. And that has horizontal implications. And so Genesis 4, we have the first murder, a brother set against a brother. Genesis 5 and 6, now it's communities that are in disarray and uh, fractured and broken. Until Genesis 6, now it's creation itself, which is out of kilter. Something's wrong with creation. And, and so you've got the flood and, and you see God trying to preserve life, God trying to preserve biodiversity, God trying to preserve his human beings and and trying to look after and protect something that's valuable, something that's good, something that's worthwhile. But all of this just keeps going to custard. And then you get to kind of the Jewish solution or, or what Judaism views as the solution. Genesis 12. Hey, God says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I choose you. And in you and through you, we're going to be a blessing, which means we're going to rectify what the mess that happened in Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, we're going to begin to restore that. We're going to begin to rectify that. And so that's what the blessing actually is. And it's interesting because the writer of Genesis actually unpacks this for us in Genesis 18, 18. He says this, God is talking about God. God, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised. So the writer of Genesis is telling us, you know, in Genesis 12, there's a promise. You're going to be a blessing, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You're going to, this is a universal blessing. You, your family, you're going to become this people, this community, and you're going to be a blessing. How will you do that? Genesis 18 tells us by creating families, you and your household, by keeping the way of the Lord. How do you keep the way of the Lord? By doing righteousness and justice. Now, let me get all geeky for a second here. <laughs> Righteousness and justice in the Old Testament is at what's called a hendiadus. It's two words that form a single complex comp uh, idea. Okay. So literally it's taken from a Greek phrase, which means one through two. Mm -hmm. And so you see those two words together give us this concept. Now the word for righteousness is doing what is right, mm -hmm. doing what is just, doing what's supposed to be done. And then justice, or I prefer the translation rectification mm. or rectifying, mm. is restoring or making things so that they are right again. Mm. And so right at the foundation of our narrative, of our story, of our canon of scripture, we have God saying, hey, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing by keeping the way of the Lord, doing righteousness, doing justice, making things right and doing the right thing. And by doing this, you're going to keep the way of the Lord. And by doing this, this is how God is going to bring about blessing for the whole world. Mm. So God's way of blessing the whole world is creating families and communities that keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Restoring things that are not the way they're supposed to be to the way they're supposed to be and doing things that you're supposed to do. 
And all of that is seen as the solution, the answer to the problem in Genesis 3 to 11. So that we can get back to Genesis 1 to 2. Good. Very good. Uh, And so for me, that's how we need to frame justice. We need to frame justice as God's rectifying power, God's restoring grace, God's healing mercy that looks at situations and goes, whoa, that is not the way it's supposed to be. We need to fix this. We need to restore this. And that happens in four dimensions. It happens vertically between us and our relationship with God. That's a justice issue because people are not supposed to live without knowing their creator. They're not supposed to live in the, with an absence of a relationship with the creator. So we want to restore and rectify that relationship with God. Second thing is we want to rectify interpersonal relationships. We want to restore interpersonal relationships. We want to make relationships that are bad, fractured, broken, uh, where there's hostility and animosity. We want to deal with that so that we can bring people together. The third thing is we want to rectify our understanding and relationship with ourself. Too many people in this world walking around thinking that they're a random group of atoms thrown together by time, chance, and necessity, and that they're a mistake. They're just something that exists. No, God says you are good, very good. In fact, there is value. There's an importance there. God himself, the creator of the universe, values individual human beings. And so we we need to restore people's relationships with themselves, the understanding of themselves. And the fourth thing is we need to restore and rectify our relationship with our environment. And so those four things are, to me, the kind of four pivotal things of what a biblical theology of justice involves. Mm. It involves rectifying things, restoring things, reconciling things so that they are good. And it relates to our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourself, and our relationship with our environment. Mm. That's what justice is. Now, the next thing, or sorry, do you want to ask? Oh, well, just uh, just saying, um, as you kind of track through the Bible, obviously we see Jesus, and you and, and just button if, I, if you're going to be hitting this in a second, but we see mm-hmm. Jesus step in, you know, God himself coming into, um, into this broken world to really uh, show us how to live, not just see us, you know, um, one day go to a heaven when we die or whatever, like this whole kind of the Sermon on the Mount and all this sort of stuff and, and the way he uh, treats those that are on the margins and oppressed in his culture. And then, you know, the commissioning to the church to kind of be his body and, and, and inhabit that. And But it's interesting, I, I'm just sort of reflecting on the church that we see um, quite a subversive approach to that. Like it's it looks quite different to the way that we would kind of protest justice issues or whatever today it's a really um it's a they have to be a lot <laughs> a lot more clever than uh than than perhaps we you know they don't have the option of just going out and waving some placards around like they have to embody something that's uh that's of the god's heart yeah exactly and i think the, the thing that i'm trying to get across is this has always been part of our story this has always been part of the, the, the kind of the DNA of the people of God 
right from the start of the story, we see this concern for justice. Right from the start of the story, we see in Psalm 33, 5, you know, God loves justice and righteousness. The earth is filled with his love mm. all throughout. And so when Jesus comes along and starts talking about rectifying, making things right and restoring relationships, and he, he uses the image of the kingdom of God, life the way it's meant to be under Jesus the King. Um, this is not something new. This is something that was always meant to be this way. And so his commission to the church is you need to embody this way of the kingdom. You need to embody this. And there is this concern for the marginalized. There is this concern for the vulnerable. But as you rightly say, you know, the church doesn't have any political power in the first two centuries. They're a nothing community. They're a, you know, they're, they're a hated community. And, and so how do they embody and do this thing called justice? Well, they create communities where they look after each other. They create communities where they embody this justice. Mm. And, and, you know, one of the things that I discovered when I began researching this was the church's concern for children mm. uh, in the ancient world. Uh, children were not considered human beings. They were on their way to becoming human beings, but they weren't really considered human beings yet. So if you have a child that's born, uh, what you do is if you're in Sparta, and this is just one of the examples, you lay the child at the father's feet. And if the father can see some kind of deformity or some kind of problem with the child, then he walks away and the child is disposed of. That means they're thrown away in a rubbish dump somewhere. Uh, if they held up, you know, the Lion King, uh, hey, look, the child is being held up. This one we're going to keep. This one gets to stay. And usually it was the girls who, by virtue of them being girls, were thrown away. Now, the early church looks at this and goes, hell no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so they begin to collect children and they begin to adopt children into their families. Now, the adoption part was actually quite crucial. Because if you adopt them, then they have the same rights as a natural born child. But the next thing that the church did, and we see this in Justin Martyr, is the church begins to publicly say, hey, sexually abusing children, that's wrong. Now, when you've got a marginalized community that's hated, taking a stand against the majority of the society saying this is not the way it's supposed to be this is wrong i mean justin martyrs eventually martyred that's why we call him justin martyr because he stood up for his christian faith mm. and he stood up for it in the public uh, sphere mm. now this is our legacy this, this is the church's legacy the church doesn't just talk about this stuff the church which is composed of families individuals they stand up and say you know what something Something needs to be done here. Mm. Something needs to be said here. And so this is our legacy. Jesus stood against it. Mm. I mean, some of Jesus' harshest words were, you're messing with children. Mm. You know, it's big to tie a large stone around your neck and throw yourself into the river. You know, that, mm. that's a pretty strong statement, you know. Mm. And we always like to think of Jesus gentle, meek and mild. But when it comes to injustice and affecting children, Jesus is not shy. Mm. You know, I read the statement by Richard Hayes the other day, which says, yes, Jesus is a lover of the sinners, but he's also a nemesis of the wicked. Mm. 
Uh, and it's quite a confronting statement that, mm. you know, Jesus is not afraid to challenge radical injustice and evil when it's harming the most vulnerable and marginalized mm. in our communities. What's and so, so interesting about that, that sets the biblical framework for a theology of justice. What's interesting about that example of the early church for me is that it started with potentially decades, you'd know more than me, decades of action looking after these neglected and, uh, and disposed of children. And uh, and it's after, uh, the, sort of, for me, there's so much more credibility to, to, um, to voicing something publicly when there's been a history of embodied response to that particular issue. And this is where when it comes to... Um, it's interesting if you look at New Zealand and with a classic sort of Western Western country in terms of the issues. If you asked most punters in the street what issues um, you know most Christians would be vocal about, certainly abortion would be right up there in terms of yeah. we've we've rightly thrown our lollies in terms of um, legislation or whatever. But my sort of I've been feeling very unsettled for a number of years, and I spoke about this last year in a sermon about the fact that there's been very little embodied response in terms of uh, walking into the lives of vulnerable women. Doing everything we can to um, to uh, to say we will support you with everything you can imagine, so that keeping that child is a genuine choice, and uh, and mm. you know that that's a choice, and you're not on your own in that. Um, and so that sort of thing of embodied response, I think uh, it might have been John Tyson. He said, you know, I care less and less about your opinion on a particular issue, and more and more now about your embodied response to said issue. Um, so, uh, and coupled with that, we've got this kind of crazy world we live in now, where everything's a political flipping hot potato and a tribal thing. <laughs> so, how do we, as the church, grow in wisdom around? Um, uh, around what it looks like to uh, be passionate, like not to to make this a political thing, but to make this a Jesus thing, or to make this a mm. thing that the the uh, bride of Christ, the body of of, of God, um, is just cl clear about when it comes to these things. Like, how can we navigate that? Because, you know, um, people use words like woke and so social justice warrior and these sorts of things as derogatory terms now, depending on which camp yeah you know, you're in politically. Um, so how do we kind of navigate this particular time where justice, and I think probably justice issues have always been tied up a bit politically. Um, it's hard to separate them completely, but how do we uh, how do we kind of orientate ourselves wisely at this time in terms of what it looks like to to be an alternative community? Yeah, great, great, great question. I think I'd, I'd like to say two things in response. Firstly, integrity is the currency of mission. Uh, if a Christian community doesn't have integrity, and how do you gain integrity? Integrity is uh, uh, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. If you want to stand up and say something publicly, you need to have some sort of integrity in that space. So look at the Salvation Army as an example. You know, they have been working with the poor and the marginalized for decades now. Okay. So when they stand up and say something, the government listens, you know, the government invites them to write reports and to, to do something. Now, that's just one example, and it's not a perfect example. I realize it's more complex than that. But here we have a community that's gained integrity in the community. Uh, and so therefore, when they speak, they have the right to speak. And so I think if the church is going to tackle any issue, we need to have integrity on the issue we're trying to address. And so this is where your embodied response comes from, you know, um, and, and I think this is where we actually need to do something. So in my church back in South Africa, um, disposing of children is 
it's an actual thing. And so we created a, a house with a, a kind of like a post box. It's this very high-tech post box type thing where if you put a child in it, you can move them forward and it locks. And then immediately a nurse in the house is alerted that a child has been dropped off. Now, that's an actual issue that our church responded to. We raised the money. We built this house. We we pay for the nurse and doing it. But that was our one way we knew how to respond to this issue. And I don't want to try and get prescriptive about how other people are going to respond to issues because I don't know what's happening in your community. But after doing that for several years now, it's kind of like we've earned the right to say, hey, you know, when we're talking about abortion in our town, you know, we get invited to those conversations. We get invited to what we're going to do about adoption because there's so many kids who need to be adopted. We get invited into what we're doing with orphans and children, but because we've done something. And so I think the church needs to actually do something. Hmm. The second thing I'd like to say is sometimes the church doesn't have to do its own thing. Sometimes the church can join with other people who are doing things already. Mm. You know, we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, so that's the other thing I'd like to say. Uh, following on from that with the whole political thing, I think we need to realize, uh, I, I read a very important book by um, Susan Hecht. Uh, on. It's called Stay, and it's a history of suicide. And she's writing from a secular perspective about the problem of suicide and how to respond to issues of suicide. And she was coming up with all these secular arguments that I thought, you know, some of them I really agree with. They overlap with my convictions. They overlap with some of the things that I think. And I think when it comes to justice issues, we need to differentiate between do we agree with said problem or do we, we don't have to always agree with how someone came to the view that this is a problem. So let me give you a contentious example. Black Lives Matters. You know, I, I come from racist apartheid South Africa. Okay. Uh, I grew up a racist. It was in the air I breathe. There's nothing I can do about that. You know, I have to constantly reform myself, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as scripture says. And I've been working on this for decades now. And sometimes I get it right. And sometimes I can see this tug of this old way of thinking just pulling in my mind. And I have to quickly correct myself. Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't think about people like that, Sean. We think about people differently. Now, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I know that there's a whole bunch of ideological baggage that goes with that movement. But I don't have to agree with the ideological baggage to agree that there's a community that is in pain and suffering, and I need to somehow exercise my solidarity with this community, stand with this community, and try and be a voice of help and hope and healing mm. in that community. I don't agree with all the ideological baggage. I'm aware of all the ideological baggage, but that doesn't have to stop me from saying, hey, here's a community in pain. There's a community that's suffering. Mm. That doesn't stop me from reaching out to my friends who are black, my friends who are black, and say, hey, how can I be of assistance? How can I help? How can I you know, stand with you in this? I don't have to agree with all the ideological stuff. Now, Black Lives Matter and things, there might be associated institutions and things that come up with various solutions. I might not agree with the thinking 
that came up with the solution. But I might agree with the actual solution. And so, again, my theology is what's shaping me and molding me and compelling me here. My devotion to Jesus is what's shaping me and molding me and compelling me here. And so I don't necessarily have to agree, hey, that's one way of you know approaching this issue. But look, here's what I can do. Here's what I can offer. Here's how I can stand with my friends. And so I think sometimes, you know, no one likes a very nuanced, complicated discussion, but sometimes I think we need to be a bit more mature in our responses and say, hey, these issues are complex. I don't agree with everything that the Labour government is doing, but some of the stuff they're doing is fantastic. And so we need to learn to affirm what we can affirm, critique what we must critique and say, hey, Maybe you've got that kind of right, but I would frame it differently mm. or I would transform mm. it a bit mm. differently there. So I mm. think that's a way of engaging in the political mm. landscape yeah, because brilliant. it is political. Yeah. That and there's a sense where I think something. the left is getting real left and the right's getting real right. And I'm really hoping that this sort of is an invitation to the church to reclaim the space where it's like, as you rightly say, things over here I agree with, things over here I agree with. But also, whatever historically my tribe has been, I've got to be able to critique the, the things that are not the things of the kingdom and to come to accept the fact that the church is this place, this community of people who cannot be boxed politically. There's bits from all across the board that we're going to be uh, appreciative of, bits that we're going to critique and, and push back against because ours is a worldview centered, as you are talking about, around the kingdom of God and around this great narrative of scripture and obviously uh, and supremely in terms of the way of Jesus. And so, um, yeah, that's so helpful, Sean. Uh, so I just, as we kind of begin to approach the runway anyway, we're, we're not landing yet, but... Um, there's, in my mind, there's kind of like this, you know, you talk about Black Lives Matter and these sort of big meta kind of things that are obviously important that we are engaging with and wrestling with and looking. But then there's also kind of like the nitty gritty. There's a danger, I think, sometimes of staying really meta and it actually doesn't really yep. impact my day to day living or my life so much. So how do we um, how do we live out? Because, again, we're in the series looking at how to live far more intentionally. Uh, uh, missionally as as a church as a people what does it look like to live this out both in terms of engaging with the meta stuff but also in terms of like uh, the day-to-day um, what does it look like to live this out a, a lot more than, than perhaps we're doing yeah look as far as engaging with the meta stuff I think we need to be informed on both sides of the discussion so uh, I mean read widely don't 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 live in your echo chamber um also, don't fall for the trap that one person's got it all right. Uh, you know, we haven't. Uh, one of the most encouraging things I ever heard Tom Wright say in a lecture I was in was he stood there and said, look, 20% of what I believe is probably wrong. My problem is I don't know which 20%. So I keep going back to scripture and I keep thinking about things to see if it is so. Hmm. And I think if we have this humility that, A, we don't know everything, we can't all be experts on everything. No matter how many YouTube clips we've watched, we're not experts on everything, okay? So we don't know everything. I have a doctorate in a specific field. I have a specialty and expertise in a specific field within early Christianity. And I need to realize when I'm stepping outside of my expertise, mm. you know, and then to be a bit more humble in my claims. I'm not an authority on everything. 
but I am an authority on some things. And, and we shouldn't be afraid of because authorities and those with expertise. The alternative is that we actually do the very opposite to God's heart, which is make someone an other because they don't agree yes. with our particular. So so again, that's I think that, that to putting humility in the recipe is vital because otherwise it, it, it inevitably leads to a perspective of anyone that doesn't agree with your particular position or your particular thing as being other and therefore... Um, lesser than you or whatever it may be and and we're, we're really having to to come to terms with what it looks like to be f really gracious really kind really humble in terms of navigating enormously complex issues today as the body of uh, christ exactly and, and so i think we need to recognize our own limitations and our own uh, kind of you know biases and stuff like that and just become a bit more self-aware when it comes to the nitty gritties uh, i think this is where we actually need radical changes and we need to think about this radically and, and and i think it starts with realizing we can't do everything but we must do something and, and so find something an area of your life where you can exercise power that will bring about change now i think all of us can exercise power with regards to fast fashion i think uh, ironically this is one of the biggest justice issues new zealand is facing we need to think about the clothes that we wear because the clothes that we wear come from certain factories, which come from uh, abusing and taking advantage of people. Uh, and so, we, you know, and what happens to those clothes is we wear them a couple of times, then they're not good quality. They don't like, and then they end up in some landfill something somewhere, which is ecologically disastrous. So I think if we begin to think about our purchasing power and fast fashion is just one example of that, we can actually begin to uh, see some actual change because economic power speaks very loudly in our consumeristic society. People respond to economic power. And when you exercise your power as an agent and say, right, you know what? I'm gonna think about the food that I buy. I'm gonna think about the clothes that I buy. I'm gonna think about, you know, even the car I drive or, or you know, uh, my big thing is don't buy bottled water, you know? There's no need for this. It makes me furious to see how much bottled water we're buying because all of that plastic just ends up in a landfill somewhere and it's polluting God's beautifully good creation. And I'm like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, the other thing I would say is don't be a keyboard warrior. You know, something really practical we can do is don't sit on computers every day having useless debates where nothing changes. You know, I think some of these discussions are, are not to be had online. They're to be had face to face with someone because tribes are created, lines are drawn, dogmatic views come out, tone is misjudged. And it's just we're creating these little echo chambers and it's just not helpful for anyone. And so I would encourage face to face communication. Mm. Sit down with people that you disagree with actually have an informed conversation and you'll find i think that both of you can respect each other when you leave it's not going to end as violently as it does online you know and i use the word violence because i think sometimes these conversations are so shallow and they just descend into name calling and i'm like well this is a justice issue for me because god says that the way we speak should honor him 
and the way we speak should be appropriate because you're engaging with somebody who's created in the image of God and somebody whom Jesus gave his life for. That's a justice issue then. The way we interact with other people is important. You know, if you read scripture, uh, you know, your conversations should be characterized by gentleness. Gentleness. Mm. Now, gentleness means not overpowering. Mm. Gentleness means not violent. Mm. Gentleness means restrained in mm. some sense. And these are not optional extras. You know, force is let your speech be gentle. Always be, be gentle. You know, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Always engage with people respectfully mm. and gently. These are not optional extras. Mm. These are instructions to people who claim to follow Jesus. Mm. Uh, and so the way we engage with each other uh, is, is really important. The last thing I'd say is ask yourself what's happening in your community right now. What are the issues? W what do you look at and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be? And then ask yourself, how can I get involved and be a solution rather than continuing to be part of the problem? And that might mean initiating something. It might mean joining something that's already existing mm. where you can be a presence mm. of good and help and hope. Awesome. That's brilliant, Sean. Um, any closing comments from you? I mean, I know, just hearing you today, obviously, you're so passionate about this. I know that you used to work for Tear Fund. And we'll link to the ethical fashion stuff. Thank, that, was a, that was a good challenge uh, in terms of really nitty-gritty um, ways that we can live this out. And, um, and we're obviously on a journey as a church in terms of what it looks like to, to, to do what you're, you're talking about there. What are the issues in our community that, that we can either find someone that we can partner with or that we can, uh, we can just look at initiating something ourselves? And so, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a great challenge. But um, this is obviously something that really you're, you're deeply passionate. Why? Like, why, Sean? Like, why do you, why is your blood moving right now? Like, tell me about that. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. For me, I, I grew up in South Africa. And I grew up, as I said, you know, in, in a culture and a context where People were abused and looked down on and treated inappropriately. And I was part of that. I, I, I had this deep sense of ownership that I was part of the problem. And uh, I wrecked my own life. You know, I, I made stupid choices. I wrecked other people's lives. I was incredibly violent. And God was gracious to me. And uh, I, I met Jesus and he changed everything. And, uh, it's kind of like I can't be quiet because I've experienced so much joy and so much healing. And, you know, uh, I have friends now from all different cultures and contexts. And, and I appreciate the beauty of God's creation. Uh, and, and so this is why I'm passionate about it. In, in Revelation 7, we have this eschatological vision of the future and what it's going to be like. And John says, I saw a people group from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, how do you see that? You see that because it's reflected in what people eat. It's reflected in the way people dress. It's reflected in their hairstyles. It's reflected in their bodies. And that's our future. Our future is not monocultural. Our future is multicultural. Our future is this kaleidoscopic, beautiful difference that God is busy creating and rejoicing in. And so we need to celebrate what we value 
And I celebrate that diversity. Uh, the next thing is, I think my my work with Tier Fund and my work with other groups, um, I've seen what we can do. And I, I've seen the good that God calls us to. And I want to be part of the solution, not mm. part of the problem. Mm. Uh, and so that's why I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about this stuff. Mm. Because uh, I think whenever we begin to do things like this, I think I hear the echo of Jesus saying, oh, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm. Oh, yes. Mm. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, you thought about that. You thought about where to buy your food. Mm. You thought about where to, to purchase your clothes. You, you sacrificed a bit there to think about what's the best way forward. Mm. Uh, and I think that makes Jesus happy. And, and as a disciple, mm. I, I want to I want to live for the Father's pleasure. I want mm. to live for that well done, good and faithful servant. Mm. As we land land uh, and the terminal approaches, um, I'm aware, you know, this week in the news, apart from New Zealand getting very orientated around lockdowns, we're, we've got a huge um, humanitarian thing, you know, sort of emerging in Afghanistan really quickly. And um, and I know that Tear Fund does some brilliant work there. So we'll link to, link to some um, things there. In terms of a meta issue, I think, you know, um, giving some money towards what's happening there is a beautiful thing. But I'm also aware that um, in this day and age, um, we've got where we put our money which is you know some of the economic stuff but the probably the most precious commodity that most people have these days is our time and um and i think as we kind of finish my challenge to our guys is uh, you know what both with with how we spend our money but also with how we use our time what does it look like for us to be engaged in, in mission and to be passionate and to be living out justice things? Because I think sometimes we can give to tear fund and we can give to certain things and we should be, but it's like, uh, it can be a little bit of like, oh yeah, I've done that. But you know, whereas yeah. I know that Jesus keeps, he keeps personalizing it. And I just, I, I remember thinking, meditating on the scripture where there's this, you know, um, the story of this guy outside the um, gates and the disciples and Jesus are wandering past and he's yelling out, son of David, have mercy on me. And um, and I'm like, why didn't Jesus just go over there? But I think it's late enough in the Gospels where I think that Jesus is like, have the boys got it yet? You know, like actually, and and then Jesus, you know, this classic brilliant moment, Jesus just stops, you know, and it's like, oh, okay. And then he, instead of going, he tells the disciples to go to that person, to bring that person to him. And I just yeah. love that story because I'm like, it's uh, it's not about, it's about us going into those places. Jesus is calling us to go and spend time with someone that, um, maybe is a bit marginalized in our workplace or is a bit left out, you know, wherever, or, or the, you know, there's lots of lonely people in our cities and there's, um, and there's a lot of, man, just people living very tough lives and we can get very disconnected from that because we're just a bit detached. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think uh, uh, both that we need to be looking at where our, our money's going, but also where our time is going in terms of are we spending, like, do can we talk about, do we have stories around spending time with people that, society has often overlooked and um yep. yeah jesus didn't say come to the poor he said go yeah <laughs> yeah i hope that you found that really uh stirring it's particularly that last statement you know god doesn't say to the poor come he calls us to go to the poor and actually that's where god is that's where you, we find god he's at work in that place and we've got lots and lots of dreams around what that looks like for bay vineyard and we've got things that are unfolding at the moment which is really cool uh, but at the moment we can't really go anywhere uh, but when things do open up 
uh, just love to encourage you to consider what it looks like to partner with what we're doing in the community uh, and to give your time and your talents and your money and all that sort of stuff and uh, uh, this wonderful mission that God is uh, doing all around us. So guys, until uh, next week, we'll most likely be online again next week, uh, but uh, grace and peace as we navigate this time together uh, and lots of wisdom around what it looks like to stay healthy and to walk wisely uh, at this time. So God bless you guys. I'm sure that we'll see some of you guys on Zooms throughout the week and we'll just keep you posted as, uh, as we get more plans, as we get a clearer picture of how things are unfolding. But grace and peace. And uh, until we see each other in the flesh again, uh, Stay classy. Kaki Death.